everybody and welcome to the goods a film podcast this is brian speaking to you through the ether and dan is here as well hey brian hey listeners how's it going so dan a new month is here sort of that's right it doesn't always quite line up with the calendar when we when we sit down to do these things but we are here at the cusp the commencement of a theme month and it's one I've been eager to dig into for a bit now. This is our Movies About Making Movies Month. M-A-M-M-M. And sometimes for fun we string on some additional M's. So we'll see how many we've got before the month is out. But kind of the unifying principle, if the name doesn't make it clear enough, is these are all going to be movies in which one or more movies is made. So we focus on filmmaker characters and it could be a film that really exists. So like a true story about behind the scenes production, or it can just be about uh, the craft. It doesn't, doesn't need to really exist. Do you have a lot of candidates for this month, Brian? I've got a pretty good slate. I already know the ones I'm for sure going to select. Okay. Uh, what about you? Still working on it? Man, I, I, at first I was like, huh, I can think of a couple. And then I sat down and I thought about it and I, I did a little bit of searching online and I was like, oh my gosh, there's like a million that I want to watch. And you get really meta w with these kinds of movies. So it's like talking about the craft of movies when the movie itself is using the craft, you know, it's, it's kind of weird, but right. Yeah. It'll be fun. Um, I, I'm really looking forward to these discussions. We're gonna yeah. I think it's going to be fun. And we kind of had like a preview of it with our Babylon and singing in the rain episode, not too long ago. So yeah, that would have been an incredible pick. Perhaps wet your palate already. But what I have chosen to kick us off in movies about making movies month proper is the film Super 8, written and directed by J.J. Abrams in kind of a team up with his executive producer, Steven Spielberg, on this project. Uh, this comes to us from 2011. So, Dan, did you have any previous familiarity with this film? Yeah, this is right around when I was following movies quite a bit. Uh, I'd recently graduated college, but I didn't see it in theaters. I, I don't know why. I really should have because it was kind of on my radar and it was kind of enigmatic. Like I remember, so I always feel like J.J. Abrams, one of his things is he like, he makes his movies events, you know? It's like, it's not just another movie. It's like, it got a code name and oh, there's a mystery. You can't share the mystery. There's always something like that with his projects. 
Right. And there'd be some kind of like experimental art installation, alternate reality game as part of the marketing. And of course, this one was coming on the heels of Cloverfield, which I think was 2008. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that one, the title didn't really tell you what it was. And they had like the, the trailer that was a, a video camera, like a camcorder shot of a disaster happening at a party and like no text on the on the trailer. So really weird. And people were left wondering, oh, what is it? I got to see this to like understand it. Mm-hmm. And so Super 8 had a little bit of that same thing. And people were kind of wondering, okay, well... This seems like it might have a monster in it. Is this a sequel to Cloverfield? And it wasn't exactly, but it's also not like you can 100% say it's not. I agree. And especially with the sequels we did end up getting for Cloverfield. So why don't we, we can talk a little bit about Cloverfield here. So I recently watched the Cloverfield movies. The reason I watched them, it's like it all ties together here, is... Because they connect to Damien Chazelle, and we just talked about Damien Chazelle in our Babylon episode, because Damien Chazelle actually wrote the script for the second Cloverfield movie. So J.J. Um, Abrams, he did, actually didn't direct any of the Cloverfield movies, but he's been the producer for all three, and I think his fingerprints are, are strongest on the first of them, the one that's just called Cloverfield. To me, that's like the definitive J.J. Abrams experience is, is Cloverfield. And I really like the first Cloverfield. I think it holds up as like a uh, a spectacle that just really evokes a certain c- kind of horror. And that being like the horror of terrorism as this encroaching, all-consuming force. And it uses a lot of 9-11 imagery. And it's really light on plot and story. But it, it really worked for me. And then each of the subsequent Cloverfields, now they I'm not going to get too specific because they kind of there's some mystery element to how much a Cloverfield monster is involved. But like, even though we do see a Cloverfield monster in Cloverfield, it's still very much like a, it's like kind of like the Jaws. And here's the Steven Spielberg connection, which we'll talk about where it's like more the threat of the thing being there is more important than the monster itself. You know, it's like, it doesn't really matter exactly what a Cloverfield monster is, but it's, the way that it's that it is a threat to you that is what makes it scary and super eight you know by and large works the same way too so i think you could call this cloverfield 0.5 you know the, the first cloverfield or something like that i don't know because this takes place before like in, in the what is it the late 70s i think yeah 1979 and everything you're saying is spot on you see in Cloverfield the monster only obliquely, which is kind of in the spirit of Jaws. And I think in in that case, it can be explained away because people are running around and screaming and it's all found footage. Like, you know, this is the the surviving record of what they had, so you don't see the monster very much. Um, Less of that excuse in this one. But, I mean, yeah, so often in, in film history, people say that's what makes something effectively scary, is it's not what you see, it's what you picture in your head. In this one, I I would have liked, I think, at least later on in the movie, to have gotten a little bit better look at the monster. Okay. Uh, But we'll we'll dig into it. Yeah, so in the lead-up to this movie, so just for context, this was the summer between my junior and senior year of college. And 
I had seen the original Cloverfield in theaters. I also would go on to see 10 Cloverfield Lane in theaters. And that's a very different movie from the, the first one. Like, it felt like the script was written and then they bought it and said, okay, this is going to be Cloverfield 2. Yeah, and Cloverfield 3 feels the same way. It's like um, Saw 2 is that same way, where literally it was like a different film, and then the first one was successful, and they're like, we want a sequel to this. Um, let's sawify this script. <laughs> but there was a bigger gap between Cloverfield and Cloverfield 2. So I think part of it was like wanting to make it feel different and strange, and you don't really know what you're going to get. Because that was the experience of the first one. Yeah, so so Cloverfield 2, it actually was conceived from the start as a Cloverfield sequel. So Damien Chazelle, he wrote the script and he was going to direct it. And then he got money for, I'm trying to see, forget if it was La La Land or Whiplash that pulled him off of 10 Cloverfield Lane. I think it was La La Land after whiplash broke out he got money for la la land but um he was going to direct it and he did write it but he like very intentionally wrote it in a way that it didn't feel like a cloverfield movie so i think although it kind of was designed that way from the start like you very much could make the case and you would barely have to rewrite it to not make it a cloverfield movie at all you know right yeah it's like change the last five minutes that is when it gets most explicitly there is yeah space monsters i feel like there's been a, a narrative to the extent that anyone talks about the cloverfield movies anymore that as time has passed 10 cloverfield lane is the the better of the two it's kind of the more unconventional one or at least it, it goes in an unconventional direction for what you expect from cloverfield and it does have a, a couple of absolutely terrific performances in it whereas in the original cloverfield you're not caring about performances at all but John Goodman is so good in Tent and Cloverfield Lane. And I really like um, the star. What's her name? Um, she's also in Scott Pilgrim. Uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead. But um, I personally found it a little just tonally confused. Like, I feel like it never quite landed its thing. Whereas I feel like Cloverfield knew what it was and nailed that a little bit more. But I, I differ from, I think, the emerging uh, cinephile consensus on that. I, everybody also hated Cloverfield 3 called the Cloverfield Paradox, and I thought it was a goofy, hilarious time. So, I mean, I'm I'm the minority on that one, too. Well, I haven't seen 3. That was the Netflix one. Yeah, and it's about uh, wormholes and alternate universes making crazy shit happen, and then a lot of crazy shit happens, and boom, there you go. <laughs> well, it delivers what it promises, then. But I think I'm with you that I like the first one better. It's been a while since I watched either. Like, I went into the second one not knowing what to expect. It's definitely an interesting movie. Mm -hmm. And its biggest effect on me is that 10 Cloverfield Lane strongly cemented for me that the uh, Tommy and the Shandells version of I Think We're Alone Now is way, way better than Tiffany's. Oh, absolutely. Stone Cold, yeah. Like, that version rules, and it's the perfect song to go with living in a bunker. <laughs> That's a good point. Like, I I didn't really think about the song very much 
before I had seen that movie. So to me, it's more a bunker song. Like if you listen to the lyrics, it's about like being in love and trying to like get away from the crowd to spend time with your lover. But I think of it as like an isolation song. I mean, yeah, you could read it either way. It's like literal physical isolation or the feeling of being alone in a room with someone, you know? Right. So I was aware of this film coming out and I had some time on my hands because it was summer. And the advertisements for this kind of hyped it up as a collaboration between Abrams and Spielberg and that it was going to kind of be like a patchwork of their styles, like the the team up movie. Mm -hmm. I think if you had gone in a lab, you couldn't have come up with a better execution of like what is a J.J. Abrams movie mixed with the Spielberg movie. Sorry, I'm about to steal your point right, here, I think. No, that's right. It's like a homunculus. <laughs> and so my question, Dan, I almost feel like there's a pivot in this movie. Mm -hmm. And I remembered it ha happening later into the film than it does. It's it's maybe like 20 minutes in, if that. Uh, but I thought it was at the half point, and it's not. Uh, but I was wondering, can you think of movies where there's some big tone shift, even maybe to the point of a genre shift partway through. And in the cases that you can think of, does that tend to serve the film well or set it back or is it a mix? So you asked me a question just a couple days ago that now makes a lot more sense because there's a very, very famous one of these from the past few years. And I'll let you go ahead and talk about that while I'm going to th think for a second on if there are any of those. Okay, well, I assume the one that you're thinking of is Parasite. Oh, no, that's not what I was thinking Best of. Best Picture winner from 2019. So the thing about Parasite, we've talked about it here on the show, it starts out as kind of a heist movie. Like, they're trying to infiltrate a household, and it's almost humorous in tone, the way they're pulling one over on this rich family. Uh, but then there's like a, a moment where a light switch gets flipped almost when their, their scheme, somebody cottons onto their scheme and like now it's serious. Like the whole rest of the movie is, is takes on this grim tone. Uh, but there are moments of even bigger shifts where it's like a whole different kind of movie. Uh, one that I think is the perfect example and one where it actually works it is uh it's called from dusk till dawn that's the one i thought you were going to bring up because you just asked me out of the blue if i had seen that a couple days ago right so from dusk till dawn i i don't want to spoil it for anybody but the way i was introduced to it was buzzed on movies co-host teddy introduced me to it and he played it for me he didn't say anything before he put it on and then he put it on and it's a team up between Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez, who brought us the Spy Kids franchise. And that one is is really like a half and half. And what I love about it is the title is so good, From Dusk Till Dawn, and it works perfectly for both halves of the film. So the first half I think of as the Tarantino half. And it's like a talky crime movie. Kind of like 
other Tarantino films, a little like Pulp Fiction. There are these two, I think they're brothers, and they've like stolen something, and they're going south of the border with this this booty that they've taken, and they have to lie low at like a safe house overnight. So that's that's movie one. Uh, but then they're at this bar where they're hiding out, and then like the full moon rises. And suddenly everybody in the bar becomes vampires and starts killing people. And there's just monster mayhem happening. And then the whole second half of the movie is a horror, like a corny, campy, and like both halves are violent, but it's a different treatment of the violence. Whereas in the first half, it's like it's kind of serious. And the second half, it's like crazy funny. And both halves are good. And that perfect title, like serves as a linchpin to kind of hinge the two together. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like to some extent, you can't really answer this question without doing some spoilers, you know, because it's like, right. It's like, whoa, this is different than it, it was building towards. It's like a, a, a left turn, you know? Parasite's a great recent example, and you can like pin that down to an instant. It's like when the doorbell rings, it's like they're reminiscing in the house that they have kind of commandeered while the rich family's on vacation. And then the doorbell rings, and then from that moment on, it's just a different breed of film. Um, haven't seen From Dusk Till Dawn, but I, I definitely want to. And apologies if we just spoiled that for anyone. Um, if you want to talk classic film, to me, like the canonical example of this is Psycho. Um, have, you've seen Psycho, right, Brian? Right. And I mean, that's got a lot of twists in it that are probably all famous. And it I'll just say it goes from um, a someone on the run trying to make an escape to a sort of murder story. Uh, and in, in a way that's very compelling with like pulls you out of your seat. I, I watched that maybe two years ago for the first time in a while. And it's, I mean, it's a full on masterpiece for sure. We talked about cabin in the woods, Brian, I think, I don't know if, how, if that's the halfway point, it kind of like breadcrumbs you there. So it's not like a hard pivot out of the blue, you know, that's what I thought of too. Right. Yeah. Cause I mean, we, we kind of see behind the veil right at the start in that one. Yeah. But uh, another example I would point to you know i love to talk about it is titanic Mm. oh man great point in that case we spend pretty much exactly the first half of the film in a romantic melodrama and then like exactly like an hour and eight minutes of a or an hour like an hour and 40 minutes or whatever you know halfway through the three hours and change they hit the iceberg and now it's a disaster movie like a disaster action epic and that's another case where I think it works pretty well. Two more examples that, again, you're verging into spoilers here. Uh, not verging, you are spoiling. I'm sorry I spoiled Titanic, guys. The ship sinks. Uh, well, mine, I think, are a little spoilerier, the one I'm about to say, at least. So, Gone Girl. Have you seen Gone Girl, Brian? I saw Gone Girl, yep. In theaters, actually. Yeah, so jump ahead 10 seconds if you don't want Gone Girl spoiled, but... I really love with that one. I think it's got a lot of uh, plotting problems that I I would kind of question. And in some ways, it kind of undermines itself, which this would be an interesting one to talk about because I have a lot of thoughts on Gone Girl. But 
I like how it, it basically starts as like a generic, like, oh, uh, lost woman, the man must step up and solve the problem to like a hyper weaponization of feminism um, in the second half. And it's it's very interesting. And it kind of kicked off a whole genre of like unreliable narrator women uh, thrillers where domesticity and patriarchy is as much the villain as uh, anything else, you know. Um, that's a good one. The biggest plot hole in that movie is that she didn't want to spend time with Neil Patrick Harris. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Although he's very gay, isn't he? I mean, not in the movie. Yes, but... I mean, then maybe even less of a threat than is is portrayed. I suppose. And then uh, the one last one is there's this movie that came out last year that was a big hit in some of the film circles that I frequent. But I was pretty medium on. Um, it's called Barbarian. And um, it actually started as a, a one-act movie or like a, a one-act script, I think. I don't know if it ever got made into a short film that the the guy who made it then wrote turned it from a one-act thing into a full movie. And so that one's not a halfway point, but at the end of the first act, it takes a very hard perpendicular turn in what the movie is. Um, and I thought the first act was the best act uh, or the best part of that movie. But that's another really interesting one where like the fun of it is that it it just goes in an absolutely wild direction after it starts. That's one that my exposure to it is I I heard the Buzzed On Movies recap. They did a whole episode about Barbarian. It definitely sounds interesting. And I'm sure it, it spoiled the experience for me that I know a lot of the twists and turns, but it, it sounds absolutely crazy. Yeah. Worth watching, at least, yeah. But there are a couple cases where... I really did not appreciate a sudden pivot in tone. And I'm going to list a couple of those now. Did you ever see the movie Hancock, Dan? No, that's Will Smith, right? Yeah, it's Will Smith as a superhero. And the first good chunk of the movie, like maybe even more than half of it, uh, the story is is very much a comedy because basically he's Superman like he was an alien who came to earth and on earth he's got superpowers so he's like super strong got all the superman stuff he can fly but because of that he like can't relate to anybody and he has like poor social skills poor hygiene because he's like he's just distanced from everybody nobody lives the way that he lives and like he'll sometimes he'll like accidentally hurt people and he's just he's he's not embraced and celebrated the way that Superman is. And so enter Jason Bateman from Arrested Development, who says he's going to be Hancock's PR guy. He's basically going to be his like spin doctor and help turn his image around. And so, OK, I, I like this. I like this premise. This is this is interesting. And like the whole first half of the movie that's what we're dealing with it's like funny hijinks of him trying to reform his image with jason bateman's help uh, and then suddenly there's this woman in the story who is like on one hand she's a love interest for hancock but it also turns out that she is a kind of a kryptonian as well she's from whatever planet he's from 
and there's like this whole ancient lore that their souls are entwined and but they can't get close to each other because if they get close to each other it's like holding magnets together and it like destroys the city and it becomes very much this like action thing and a romance and it was just too much and it was introduced really late in the story it's like no give me back that thing that i had for the first act and a half that was my feeling at least yeah i remember that one being divisive i'd like to catch up with it at some point just to form my opinion on it that's when uh when will smith was starting to take some swings i saw a couple movies around that i liked that he was just going a little bit out of the i mean i guess that's still a blockbuster so maybe that's not a good example but yeah another example of this that i saw a long time ago so my memory is not as fresh but it's a movie from peter jackson actually in the the later 90s so before lord of the rings but it's called the frighteners have you ever seen that one? No. So this is like a horror comedy starring Michael J. Fox. And he is a ghostbuster, except he's a con man because he has friends who are ghosts and he sends them on ahead to haunt the house. And then the homeowners have to pay him to come get rid of the ghosts. And then they move on to the next house. Okay. So again, great premise. Sounds funny. I love that. Uh, but then, like halfway through the movie, they run into the ghost of like this totally debauched, horrible serial killer who is then like this true evil presence. And I mean, I guess it works okay, but it just, it really was like a downer. Like this, what had been like a breezy comedy was now suddenly like dark and and more actiony and horror-y. I don't know. It doesn't always gel is my point. Huh. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like they're intentionally challenging the audience to like, oh, there's a dark undercurrent to whatever things you feel like you're enjoying or something like that. I don't know. It can get like pseudo arty or something. <laughs> yeah. Maybe there's something to that. I, I think you could be right. We aim to provide challenging cinema on this podcast. <laughs> yes. No, no filmmakers are more challenging and obtuse than J.J. Abrams and Steven Spielberg. <laughs> and on that note, I guess let's let's get back on track with this movie that we're focusing on today. Super 8 from 2011. Uh, so one more piece of context before we have a recap is that in fall of 2010, I decided that I was going to major in film in undergrad. And I wrote and directed my first short film, which was a zombie comedy called Undead Presidents, No Damnation Without Representation. So it's about the founding fathers coming back as zombies and used the colonial Williamsburg backdrop where the school was. So bear bear in mind that that was fresh. I was just coming off making that film. And then, uh, then this comes not too long after that. Super 8 does. That's synergy, I think. Yeah, and we'll get into why that is as we describe the plot. 
So this movie, as Dan said, takes place in the late 70s. I think they say it's 1979. And it's in this Rust Belt town in Ohio. I guess not a real town. Apparently they shot in West Virginia. But, you know, it's like the stereotypical company town in in that area of the country. And we open with a shot... Apparently, J.J. Abrams came up with this shot before anything else of a days since an accident sign at a factory being reset to zero. I feel like that is only ever used for comedy. This is the only time that I think I've ever seen it used for dramatic purpose and not punchline. (laughs) I guess that's, yeah, true. It works pretty well here. Because what has just happened is that our protagonist's mom got smashed by a girder. Hilarious. We don't see it. Yeah. But they talk about it. That a a steel beam dropped down and just squished her. It's not exactly the same, but I imagine the death in Rudy, which to me is like the, the prototypical factory death. I don't know if you remember that scene from Rudy. It's been a long time since I saw that one. What happens? He and Rudy and his best friend are working at a factory and uh, Rudy's best friend who is kind of like in the, the Simpsons, the one character who you just they, they make a parody of it. It's his last day to reti- until he's going to retire. He's not a cop in this one about to go on his last mission or anything, but he, he has all of the this guy might die red flags going. Right. Or on, on Walk Hard, the, I've got a long, long life ahead of me. Right, exactly. But um, something goes wrong in the factory and uh, the the best friend heroically tries to save it, but it explodes and you see his body's burning body like fall into the depths of the factory with Rudy shouting, no! So that's what I think of as the default... Uh, factory death that's what i had in my mind wow yeah you're always liable to get pulled through a table saw or something <laughs> we need a tier list of things that brian references when he's <laughs> yeah the, so we don't linger on this visually but it, it kicks off the story because next it's the the son and his friends at the funeral for the mom and we kind of get introduced to this friend group and their dynamic. And we're going to be following this group of, of kids, like uh, te- uh, preteens. I think it says they're 12. And I like these kids. It's good casting. They've got uh, quick and witty repartee. Incredible casting, I thought. And I only knew one of the, the group. I was like, oh, I would watch a whole... Hey, a whole Netflix show about these characters. (laughs) That's uh, a little bit of foreshadowing. Yeah. And like they're making quips about like the finger sandwiches that are being served at the at the funeral. So, you know, even in this moment of darkness, there's some levity. And I was feeling Goonies at this moment. Uh, all throughout this movie, there's like homage and beyond to Spielberg movies. And just that we got this group of kids who who have this like mile a minute dialogue 
and they're going to be going on some kind of like covert adventure. It feels Goonies. Yeah, and I was already thinking of a couple of things. So one is the first season of The Wonder Years. So I feel like The Wonder Years, we really need to talk about it sometime because I think of it as my favorite TV show of all time. And I feel like I'm the only one who has it anywhere near their favorite of all time. I feel like this show has gotten a a reputation over time as just being like a schmaltzy nostalgia fest. And it it kind of is that sometimes, but it could be really bracing and uh, evocative in, in really interesting ways. And like just kind of go to some daring places and poetic places for I mean, particularly like late 80s, early 90s sitcom. You know, that's how it was marketed. But one of the first arcs, it's like the first three episodes, maybe even just the first two. But um, Kevin Arnold has has a crush on Winnie Cooper and he feels like he's making progress with it. And then uh, Winnie's brother dies in Vietnam. And then I think it's the second episode, maybe the third episode is uh, the brother's funeral. And he's trying really hard to flirt with Winnie at the funeral and so like this whole weird juxtaposition of like kids just living their kids lives in the midst of something tragic that's like traumatizing for one of the main characters and like the way that everybody's kind of processing that i was thinking of here oh good call i've seen a lot of the wonder years but i wouldn't mind revisiting it and I, I do kind of like the edits where you just see kevin staring off into space and it cuts the narration that is always there yeah, because man, did that show crutch on its narration. <laughs> uh, but Joe and his friends make movies. So Joe helps out his his buddy Charles, Charles Kasnick, who is a budding director. He's kind of a, a husky child, as Rhett and Link say. And, and so Joe typically serves the role of doing makeup and sound work on the movies that Charles writes and directs. And the rest of this circle of friends is also involved. There's this kid named Carrie who is like a pyromaniac and he does effects work. And they have this other, like this nerdier kid named Martin who is their lead actor, at least in this project that they're working on. There's one more guy. His name is Preston. To me, he was too similar to Martin, but I think maybe he works the camera. Also, partway through the movie, they get separated, and then Preston is just not with the group anymore. Yeah. I was like, oh, I think they realized as they were editing the script, we don't have enough for this character to do, but also we've written all the earlier scenes with this many characters, so we're just going to let Preston fade off into the distance here. (laughs) Although he did get a good scene where, like, the adults are looking for the kids and they, you know, corner him. Like, where are they? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. But Joe is our main character. He's the one who lost his mom. And so we're going to mostly be following him. Another thing that Joe does is he makes models. That comes up time and again. And he specifically has the Aurora monster models, which I'm part of several. I've never made one but kind of just an outgrowth of the horror host scene. I'm part of several Facebook groups devoted to Aurora monster models. So these were familiar to me. 
he doesn't just make models. He also does model trains and, and various kinds of models. I think here is where we can say another movie that this reminded us of quite a bit. And for me, it was like almost drowning how much it reminded me of. And that's last year's Fablemans by Spielberg. Definitely. So that was the story directed by Spielberg of his childhood, essentially barely fictionalized the story of how he got into movie making. Also one of few of his movies that he officially is a credited writer for too, which I think makes sense because of how autobiographical it is. Yeah, it pretty much has to be. Yeah, I saw that as well. And we're going to get into some more specific Fableman ties here pretty soon. Mm -hmm. Now, the film that this group of kids is working on right now is a film noir mystery, except at the center of the mystery is a zombie outbreak. Zombies are attacking people. So it's like in the film within a film, it's a genre hybrid. And... Early in the story, Charles, the director, announces that he's reached out to a girl to join the group. He's he's invited Alice to come be in the movie, who is a she's a like a pretty but also kind of wrong side of the tracks girl. So, you know, this is a stock character type we've seen a few times. I was thinking of the kind of the girl from some kind of wonderful What's, what's her name? The Back to the Future actress? Thompson. Leia Thompson. Uh, but then... In, in, um, in some kind of wonderful, isn't it the other way around? Isn't the best friend the wrong side of the tracks? Well, I guess that's true. So my point in some kind of wonderful was like her... The Leia Thompson character was like she was embraced by the upper class because she was beautiful. But she was, she didn't have money. She was like, that comes out in their discussion. That's right. Good, good call. Yeah. That was like episode five or something. That was a long time ago. Uh, but anyway, so now Alice is, is here and we figure out pretty early on that Joe's got a crush on Alice and like, he's kind of blown away that Charles was even able to talk to her and get her to be involved with this goofy project they're working on. And Alice is played by Elle Fanning. So back in 2011, like Dakota Fanning had made it big. She'd been in that, the live action Charlotte's Web. She was in... War of the Worlds with Tom Cruise, another Spielberg movie. Mm -hmm. And so Elle Fanning was Dakota's kid sister. Although I think at this point, Elle Fanning has probably done more than Dakota Fanning has. Yeah, is this a, like a Macaulay Culkin situation? How so? Well, the one ch child actor makes it big and is kind of famous as a child actor. And then their sibling sneaks in with a more productive career. I think so. Did Kieran come first or was Macaulay first and then Kieran got a role? Well, no, M Macaulay came first and then Kieran and to a lesser extent, Rory. I mean, maybe the Olsen twins are a better example followed by Elizabeth Olsen. Yeah. I was thinking, I was thinking Olsen twins with Elizabeth Olsen. I'm still hoping for Trent Olsen's breakout. We got to get him on the screen. 
<laughs> Call him up, see if he'd appear on the pod. <laughs> we missed our chance with Jansen. We gotta we gotta jump on these things. <laughs> Make hay while the sun shines. R.I.P. But uh, yeah, I mean Elle Fanning now, she's got like that Catherine the Great show. She's been in various things. I feel like you don't hear about Dakota Fanning anymore. I think they are the voice actors for the sisters in the English dub of My Neighbor Totoro. Really? Which you know I adore. So that was a long that was a long time ago. So that must have been when they were just getting started. They were very young. Yeah. Well, the, so the dub wasn't made when the movie came out. The movie is like as old as me, and I mean they're both younger than me. I think the dub was was in the early 2000s, but they were both young. They sound like little girls in the in the movie. Wow, I didn't know that. But she shows up and she's like cooler than all of them. She drives a car even though they're 12. So they start getting footage for this this film that they're making, the zombie movie. And one of the first scenes that they shoot is they're filming at a train station. And something that Charles is always saying is that he wants his movie to have production value. So, like, if something real is going on, he wants to capture that, to, like, add reality to the story. And, like, that's his justification for for having even a girl in the story. It's like, we got to have production value, guys. So I thought that was funny. Uh, But they're here at this train station, and they're setting up the gear... And yeah, it's kind of, there's like some obvious irony to it because we see very much that are just making like a a rinky dink. I mean, it's in the title, Super 8, like handheld camera mini project. And so the obsession with production values is, it's got like a glow of irony to it. Although it is kind of cool how like, how into making, trying to make it as real as they can, you know? Right. And we even get a scene where, like the magic of the movie is like bigger than the sum of its parts because it turns out that Alice is like a legitimately good actress and it does kind of raise the bar. And so they're they're filming this scene between the detective protagonist and this wife character that's just been added to the script and then a train comes towards the station. And Charles says, oh, quick, set up the camera. We got to get this train arriving because that's going to add production value. And then as they're filming this train, somebody drives onto the tracks in front of the train. I.e. it's the crash from the greatest show on Earth, the circus movie, the first film that Spielberg saw, which is recreated in Fablemans also. Yeah, and which we talked about on the podcast just a couple weeks ago. Right, so while they're, like, focused on doing this movie, suddenly this car tears into frame, slams into the train, and the movie changes on a dime. Just suddenly, it's a CGI, it's like Michael Bay Fest, train cars flying through the air and exploding. Whereas up to this point, there'd been nary a CGI frame... And now it's like a video game cutscene. I don't know. I wanted more of what we what we had going on. Yeah, just kids making making the movie, goofing off, 
weird chemistry with Elle Fanning and whoever this main guy is. It's like, yeah, I was vibing with this. I really was. It was like, this is really fun and charming. And I just want to see these kids make their movie and have a good time. And apparently, like... According to J.J. Abrams, this was his original concept for the movie. It's like, just have kids making a movie. But he thought it wouldn't sell. At least that's what he said. So uh, maybe there's some truth to that. But I I was kind of bummed sitting there in the theater. It's like, I thought we, we were firing on all pistons. I want to just stay in this <laughs> stay in this realm. Uh, but now yeah. things have, have changed. And it's gotten Cloverfield-y. Because, well, yeah, train cars flying every which way, stuff pouring out of the train, uh, and it's like weird sci-fi stuff, because some of these cars are full of, like, silver Rubik's Cubes that have weird properties. And the kids are like, well, they're shook, obviously, and they're, like, regrouping, just making sure that everybody still has all their digits, nobody was smashed by a girder and so a weird moment is they find the car that hit the train and the driver is in there still alive how i don't i don't buy for a second that this guy would be anything other than a pancake (laughs) yeah there is a phrase i thought of when this happened it was actually, I first heard it uh, in the context of the the recent Titanic submarine that had the implosion. And uh, someone was saying, the people on that sub ceased to be biology and became physics. As in, that's how much like destructive force was placed upon their body by this. And I was like, this dude should have ceased to have been biology and have become physics with the the force of this train and the the extent of this crash. Yeah, I heard Stockton Rush called Captain Crunch. So, it yeah, it would be over quick. Which, I mean, in some ways, like the case of the girder from the beginning of the movie, like, there are worse ways to die than something that happens instantaneously. But this guy in the car is not dead, somehow. And the kids recognize him. He's their science teacher. And he tells them that they need to get out of there because somebody is going to be coming to investigate this crash and if they find the kids there they will kill them so he says go go and they they take off like as the authorities start to arrive and they they tear off in their car and and get back uh undetected so far i like the trope of the guy who you're not sure if he's he's paranoid and crazy and it's kind of spend much of the rest of the story figuring out whether he's paranoid or not. I feel like this movie didn't really drag it out, as we'll see, but it's always an interesting trope. And there's certainly a heavy dose of that in 10 Cloverfield Lane. That's right. Yeah, that's true. But now the military is on the scene and they're investigating this train crash. Apparently this train was operated by the Air Force, and there's some kind of secret Air Force project involved. And Joe's now single dad is the sheriff's deputy in the town. 
And so he's kind of also doing his own investigation, and he's on, like, the side of the little man, the common folk, and he's going to try to get to the bottom of what's going on for the townspeople. And so this is now, like, a combination of other Spielberg movies. Like, we've got elements of E.T., because... The kids left their camera behind at the scene of the train wreck, and it captured something while it was still rolling. Some mysterious creature emerging from the train. And now that now the military is investigating. So, like, that is like E.T. There's a weird creature in the town. Kids are going to have a connection with it, but the authorities need to shut it down. Uh, but then I also saw like elements of Jaws because you've got the like good guy cop who says something's going on here and the authorities say no stay out of it nothing's going on here this is an idyllic town and nothing is happening also I think at this point we need to talk about the Netflix series Stranger Things Dan have you watched much of Stranger Things so I've seen like three or four episodes. I feel like me and my wife do this a lot is we try a show and then we like it enough to watch a couple episodes, but then it doesn't hook us sufficiently to make like impel us to watch more. And um, that was what Stranger Thing was, is we liked it. It's not that we didn't like it, but we just never managed to make time to see it. And then it, at some point, we're like, hey, you want to feel like trying something new, different show? Sure. And then we just never went back and finished Stranger Things. So I've seen like three or four episodes. Yeah, so I've watched the first three seasons so far. And of those, I think season three was the best. Season, season one was okay. okay. I did not like season two. Season three, I actually quite liked. And I got I got to go back and, and catch up. I got to finish season four. Something minor tangent but something about streaming now is like episodes don't have to be regular episode length they can just be movies now like stuff like mandalorian the later seasons of stranger things it's like it's an hour and 21 minutes now for an episode it's like this is this is long this is a commitment it's like Brian's a busy man. On some on some regard, it's like I almost miss the advertisers. It's like they were the ones keeping us keeping us in a box, keeping things brisk. Yeah, no, I I read a few books on the art of a television script, and one thing that they always emphasize is that the commercial breaks, the the ad breaks, are the skeleton of a TV episode. It's not even like you need to fit them in. It's like, that's what the, sh you start with that. And then you like fill in the gaps between like, it's not like those are the gaps. It's the gaps are the things between the, the act breaks. Right. Yeah. You need to keep people invested to stick around through the ad break. But then it got muddier and muddier over time. Like uh, lost. One of the things people don't talk about quite as much with lost, but in the way that it was influential is, it basically turned the five-act drama, which was the traditional hour length, into a six-act drama by making the introduction, it's basically its own act, um, and kind of shifting the way that you wrote TV dramas by like using the intro more artfully and expansively and stuff. And, and now, obviously, all that's thrown to the wind with streaming because you don't have ad breaks. You can just 
I mean, some people even say, oh, we wanted to make a 13-hour movie and we split it into eight pieces and, you know, something like that. And Lost, of course, from J.J. Abrams. Oh. So it all comes together. Yeah. It's, this is a cohesive, planned show. Yeah. Damon Lindelof was uh, the co-creator with J.J. Abrams, and I think there might have been one other guy, but those were the two most famous ones. And I've seen uh, the next show that Damon Lindelof made is The Leftovers, which... I've on record here as saying is I think is one of the best shows ever made. And then he made the new Watchmen too, which I've really wanted to watch, but I haven't seen. And I feel like he just did one uh, recently. But when I say the new Watchmen, I mean the, the one season TV show that was on HBO. Right. But yeah, Stranger Things totally feels cribbed to me from Super 8. Like it's, it's very much in that space. Of course, Super 8 already being an homage that's what I was going to say is, can you say copied the idea of being an homage to something yeah, else? Yeah, you, you can't really. So I can't fault it. But it's very much in the same creative space of, hey, remember 80s sci-fi? Let's recapture that tone, that style, that feeling. And so, like, specifically referencing uh, Spielberg projects, but, like, even more Stephen King. There's a ton of Stephen King in Stranger Things. I feel like there's a bit of it in in this Super 8 as well. Is Stand By Me Stephen King? Yes, it is. Okay. So so is It, which I'm going to talk It here soon. Have you seen either version of, either film version of It? No. All right. So back to that in a minute. But like go down a laundry list of, of plot elements in Stranger Things. You'll see there's a lot of overlap. Because, okay, you've got this group of, like, dorky kids. Uh, and so in Stranger Things, they're like a and d group. They, they play D&D. Uh, here, they're making monster movies. But then something weird starts happening. And a sinister government group is covertly working on a project in the town. And as you learn more, you find out that they are studying some kind of alien or extra dimensional entity. And the kids are going to try to get to the bottom of this. And it's a group of boys, but they get joined by a single girl when the, the story kicks off. And the girl is named L. But then also you've got a paternal character who's a cop and he's like the good guy cop who's opposed to the, the shadow organization. So there's like a lot of overlap. I thought, Okay. Yeah, actually, I can see that now that you're, you're saying that. Because it turns out the train, back here in Super 8, was carrying a giant alien monster a la Cloverfield, and what we get to see of it, it looks kind of like a praying mantis. Like, it's got multiple limbs, but kind of like an upright posture. What I thought it really looked like was there's this scene in Star Wars Episode 2 where Anakin and Obi-Wan and Padme are in, like, a coliseum and they have to fight CGI monsters. And the thing that Anakin fights looks just like this this Super 8 monster. Like a bluish, big mantis thing. Hey, someone should hire J.J. Abrams to make a Star Wars movie. <laughs> Well, he's got to finish his Star Trek first. 
No Star Wars until you finish your Star Trek. Yeah, I don't know how it fell to him. Did I guess because he made he made some successful sci-fi stuff, but weird to me to hand like the reins of every sci-fi franchise to one dude. I know. Well, I kind of wonder if the fact that Star Trek was I think the Star Trek reboot was pretty successful, pretty big hit, and it was pretty well regarded for like kind of modernizing uh fusty old property. That's a good point. I mean, I saw Star Trek 2009 in theaters. I thought it was good. But I'm also not super knowledgeable about Star Trek. That's true, yeah. What I will say is I went with a group of friends to see Star Trek 2009. And while we were watching, because that is uh, like a retelling of the origins of the original series cast. So, like, young Kirk, young Spock, young Uhura, and the rest. And we were watching this, and my friend Ben, like, halfway through, starts nudging me in the ribs. He says, where's the bald guy? And I I was like, what? And he says, the bald guy. Who's him in this? And so then, like, for about 20 minutes after that, I was, like, sitting in my seat, scratching my head, trying to figure out what he was talking about. And then I was like, oh, he's thinking of Picard. He's thinking of Star Trek Next Generation. And so then when the credits rolled, I I pulled him aside and and broke the news to him that there have actually been many Star Trek series. But that's pretty funny. Who's the bald guy? Who's him in this? Nobody. (laughs) Who's him in this? Uh, but <laughs> back on track again to Super 8. I do think it's kind of telling about this movie that every now and then there's movies like this where it's almost more interesting to think about how it's like other things than the movie itself. Yeah, it's like a nexus. It's pieces connected together. It's tied into the cultural fabric more than I care about it as an individual artwork. Right. Anyways, not to keep us too far off track here. Yeah. But, so there's a monster now. We're in a monster movie. This thing is prowling around the town behind the scenes and causing weird things to happen. Like it's taking a lot of metal devices. And the dogs in the town are running crazy. I don't remember exactly what's causing that to happen. I guess this thing just has a weird energy field or something. Uh, but I, w- I was also seeing this time, Dan, connections to a movie that you've brought to the podcast, which is The Iron Giant. Did you see any of that? Hmm. You know, I didn't think about it, but there definitely are some things there. Yeah. Because you've got this big thing, like, taking all the metal in the town. Right, right. And there's the government bad guy agents looking into it but the kids know what's going on yeah and and uh, and then kind of this americana element to it yeah like cold war exactly yeah Yeah. in fact i think somebody even says is it a russian invasion oh yeah they do yeah that was kind of a goofy line it was like hey remember it's the cold war everybody they're gonna talk about the russians and sure enough (laughs) somebody picasso (laughs) But amidst it all, the kids keep making their movie. 
like they they're doing that too it's summertime and they're they're making use of the daylight and they're like always on scene where something is going on with the alien also making part of their movie because they they got to have their production value so like okay well we'll go and film at the wrecked train cars we'll go and film at the military installation so we're seeing like bits and pieces of their story that they're putting into this movie while also advancing the alien plot yeah it's like a chance for them to really get some like legit production values into their film all right, so you got like the the train forensics investigators and the military guys filing by in the background. And amidst this backdrop, Joe and Alice are growing closer, experiencing mutual attraction. And so now I want to say why this movie has really stuck in my memory, which is that there's this scene in it which I feel like I have lived prior to this movie being made. So almost like J.J. Abrams is spying on me or something. But this exact moment in the film when Joe is putting zombie makeup on Alice and she says, how do I be a zombie? And then there's this moment of weird sexual tension between these, these two where he's like, teaching her to be a zombie and then she starts doing it and i i have had this exchange on my my first <laughs> film project like writing directing and she asks how do i be a zombie interesting i like this scene a lot too it was like my brain is is on on the screen it was like oh my god that's crazy it's it's so weird when, like, something you know so well, you do, like, the Leo pointing at the screen meme. You're like, oh, my God, this is it. But this was the scene where I, I was like, I just want to watch these kids just make a movie and see, like, what happens and stuff. And I don't know. Right. To me, it's definitely the best part of the film, of this weird hybrid project. It's yeah. like, this is the half of the movie I care about more, that I'm more invested in. But... This also introduces conflict into the group because Charles discloses to Joe that the whole reason that he reached out to Alice in the first place is that he had designs on her too. So yeah, we just got this whole drama going on just with these kids, even alien or no alien. Mm -hmm. But there is an alien. And also there's weird stuff going on with these cubes. There's a, a whole bunch of cubes that came from the train. Joe took one of them. And this was another element that to me was like Iron Giant, because in, in that movie, he's got like a piece of the robot and the robot can like assemble itself. And all the pieces are kind of autonomous and can can form back together when summoned. Right. They have like a tracking device where they it's almost like um hive mind or something like that like they can sort of each think independently but they also all know what their mission is yeah but things build and eventually the the military decides they got to evacuate the town and so everybody is kind of shipped off to like a hurricane katrina type evac center and they're all just sitting tight 
but the the kids sneak off to do more investigating find the monster track it down and they want to go to the science teacher's he's got like a trailer like a parko somewhere i guess on the school grounds or something uh but because they realize that the science teacher knew something about the creature and how to deal with it so here in this middle act that's what they're after is is figure out what the science teacher knew also up until this point the science teacher is still alive the like bad guy military dudes have him in a like an area 51 yeah they they bring him out again and i'm like you gotta be fucking kidding me dude like how what is up with this this science teacher he gets hit by a train he survives and then he gets taken off by taken away by the like i I thought he was bleeding like i thought we saw him die i thought he was like oh that's the end of the the teacher and then now we're 40 minutes later in the movie yeah me too it's like they just needed him to like you know lurch forward and grab somebody and say get out but no there's he's still just malingering 40 minutes later here he is it's like what the hell (laughs) i'm glad you felt the same uh because now just to show how bad the bad guy is he like knifes him or something it's like uh, this dude is going to expire from his injury surely but i mean maybe not he's the he's he's the hardiest guy i've ever seen it would have been a great ending at the end of the movie after all this had gone down that the science teacher walked out and gave a pat on the back to the hero like you did it son <laughs> <laughs> I, I i would like that ending i think um, but in the science teacher's office, the kids find out that he was a scientist, like back in the fifties, back in the B movie alien invasion days. And he was there on site when they recovered this alien from its spaceship crash. And like when the ship crashed, it collapsed into a bunch of Rubik's cubes. So that's weird. But I guess it's it's alien material and it can act strangely. Um, but also the alien grabbed the scientist and can like telepathically communicate through touch. So if the alien touches you, you know what it's all about. You know what his angle is. And apparently this alien is just peaceful. Just wants to get back to its ship and and get off the planet. But I don't know about you, Dan. I didn't exactly buy that. Like, this alien is not E.T. It's not nice all the time. It's causing trouble. There was a lot of stuff with characters still being alive when there was no plausible reason they should have been alive. So, like... I guess we're not at the point where they we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about some of this stuff, but I didn't quite get the alien. Yeah, I'll say uh, me. Yeah, exactly. I, d- I don't get it because what I was thinking of, I know you've never seen the movie Mars attacks some October, maybe the October after next, we're going to do Mars attacks. But in that the aliens are constantly saying we come in peace even as they're disintegrating people. (laughs) Like, don't worry, we come in peace. But they're like unreliable narrators. That's kind of how I feel about this alien. 
it's not a hundred percent clear to me whether or not this alien eats people. It certainly seems to, but like every time that we think we see it eat somebody, like later on we find out that it has like tied it up spider style and it has like this big lair. And so, okay, was well, it gonna eat them later? Because they're not dead yet. It for sure kills the bad colonel guy, but like, I don't know if it eats him. Uh, what it wants us to think is that like humans have poked the beehive. Right. Like humans have invited bad treatment at the hands of this alien because we treated it bad first, which, okay. Like I can kind of accept that. But I just don't think the alien is necessarily serving its own purposes if really what it wants to do is just leave the town. Yeah, and I don't know if you said this yet. Did you say that Elf Anning was abducted by the alien yet? Yeah, that happens around this point. I hadn't said it yet, but yes, important is it it captures Elf Anning. Yeah, so, so now Elf Anning is captured. And to me... If, if you're looking at this not from a plot armor perspective, but just looking at it, you'd be like, she's dead. The, the giant monster got her. There's no reason to think she's anything but dead. But I've noticed this is a thing J.J. Abrams does in multiple of his movies. And I'm thinking in particular of Cloverfield. I'm going to minor spoiler on Cloverfield here. They around halfway through the movie, they're, they're like, well, I think my friend is in that building over there. We need to go rescue her. And it's like the all of the buildings are destroyed. Why would you possibly think that this person is alive there? And why would you think it's a good idea for you to go over there where there's like collapsing buildings? Now, it ends up making for like exciting cinema and stuff, but it's like total movie logic that to assume that that this character it would be alive. This particularly like so you can go in and do a dramatic rescue, you know? Another minor character who's involved in the hijinks at this point, there's this nerdy older guy, like an older teenager, who develops the film for them. He works at the Photoshop, and so they routinely bring their reels into him to get processed. And the the film nerd guy has a crush on Charles's older sister. And so they recruit him to help drive them around kind of like the older sister in recess schools out oh that's funny it is like that a little bit yeah we need you bribery here right exactly so carrots and sticks (laughs) right because they say hey i'm going to talk you up to my my hot older sister if you help us out because the film guy's got got a crush on on Charles's sister, played by A.J. Machalka. So, was this somebody you recognized, Dan? Yeah, uh, Ali and A.J., is that how you pronounce right. it? Right, they've got a, a singer duo. And Ali, I think, was more famous. So, you know that I watched a fair bit of Disney Channel at a, a very specific window of time in the mid-2000s. And Allie was one of the main characters on the show Phil of the Future. Oh, okay. And so she was pretty prominent on Disney Channel. And then there was a Disney Channel original movie called Cowbells, 
which stars Ali Machalka and her sister, AJ Machalka. They're basically like Paris and Nicole, these rich, spoiled girls who have to go work on a dairy farm. And so it's called Cow Bells, B-E-L-L-E-S, because they're these these beauties. Okay. But now they have to do like like dirty labor, like um, what was that show that Paris Hilton had? Simple Life. Oh, right. Yeah. So that that was a decom around the same time as all the other decoms that I talk about. Uh, like Read It and Weep, you got a, a sister act. Kind of funny. Just here, I'll throw this in here. Um, in not our Discord, but in another Discord I'm in, where I feel like I know a lot of the people pretty well at this point. Uh, someone, actually it was Gavin, who's been on uh, the podcast before, mentioned in comparison to something else, uh, he brought up DCOMs. He said, would a DCOM be blank? The context of the conversation is not important, but he brought up DCOM, just typed it as DCOM. And another person replied, what's a DCOM? And I was like, now I know you don't listen to my podcast because you wouldn't ask that question if you listen to the goods. <laughs> That's good. I like that we are influencing the lingo of others. It's all part of our big psyop. <laughs> Not that we necessarily have claim to the phrase, but it's such like, I don't even think about it when I say it anymore. Like, I just assume that everybody knows what a decom is when, <laughs> when I say it. Yeah. Same thing. Like when I say AWOG, you know. It's Amazing World of Ghosts. <laughs> yeah, I know it. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, this this whole thing of roping in the older sibling to drive you around on your adventure, there's also quite a bit of that in Goonies. Uh, and then also another movie that maybe we'll have to watch sometime is Paranorman, the, mm. the Leica project, which I think was also like hearkening back to, to stuff like the Goonies. I see, yeah. But has has that same element but the the military is like closing in on the alien in the town only the like weird energy from the alien makes all their guns go off at once and they have tanks and stuff too and so now like just everything is exploding like i would think you would figure out that that happened a little earlier a little more piecemeal like before all the artillery is there like a gun would go off and say oh we gotta pull back right it's like weird i didn't fire that yeah but it's just instantly a big mess and the or the military is like bumbling well it's you know it's almost comical right well so now is this the same time when all of the metal goes flying or would do the guns first? I can't remember. Well, it's just like everything is exploding. Like the shells and the bullets are all going off. I see. The, the okay. metal th flies together at the very end, pretty gotcha. much. Uh, but so the the adults are ineffectual. They're, they're not achieving their goals. But the kids are getting to the crux of the matter. They trail the alien down into a tunnel system under the town where it's got like a big nest and it's got a bunch of people like spidered up in cocoons for maybe it's going to eat them. I don't know, but it's it's got them like long term storage down there, which, again, doesn't serve the alien's goal of wanting to leave. Right. I feel like if it was really intent on leaving, if it got something in its way, it would just be like. You're an ant. Okay, be gone. Like, I step on you, ant. Right, like, swipe it aside or whatever. Like in, um, 
what's the weird one? Uh, Fantastic Planet, the little humans, like with the big blue aliens who they just treat the the humans as pests when they're in the way. They like exterminate them and kick them out of the way and stuff. And it's like, that's what a monster would really do if we were a tiny little inconsequential thing to them, you know? Yeah. So it's it's weird. What exactly this monster wants from moment to moment seems to shift. But this whole setup of the kids tracking the monster down into like the sewers and it's got a nest down there where it's dragged all its victims. This is it. It, it from Stephen King. Mm, okay. Like very much it's the climax of it. And even in that story, like when they see its true form down in the sewers, it's like a big spider thing. Okay. So I was definitely seeing that here. This is the moment where I was like, well, you guys got real lucky that it turns out that A, she's still alive, and B, when this guy goes after you, he doesn't eat you. He doesn't just slice you in half that he very easily could. But good for them for figuring it out and making it work. Yeah, because the monster... Initially, the pyro kid distracts it with some fireworks because you got to have something for the pyro kid to do. Uh, but then it grabs Joe and it scoops him up. The aliens got him, but senses his good vibes. They have this like telepathic exchange and they realize that each other is cool. And the alien, I guess, knows that Joe has gone through some stuff because he lost his mom. And, and lets him go, puts him down, and then climbs up out of the sewers into the town. I guess it's ready to leave now. For some reason, it, it wasn't before. <laughs> well, another thing is it's gotten together all this metal stuff from all over the town and is building something. So that, of course, is very E.T., like get get together all the all the electronic odds and ends to work on your project because ET's got a phone home. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it it like climbs up a building in the town and now all the townsfolk can can see what it is, see the alien, and it like uses its magic energy to summon all the metal bits together. And for whatever reason, it doesn't need to be the cubes from before. Like some of the things are the cubes. But ostensibly, to start with, the whole ship was made of cubes. And, like, those cubes should still be around. It has the ability to summon the cubes. But a lot of this ship that it's making is not cubes. So I, I don't really know how it works. You do get some cool effects of, like, the car flying through the air, magnetized and stuff. But, yeah, I didn't quite know what was going on here either. And then you'll get to what happened and I still didn't quite know what was going on. Right, right. So my favorite moment, credit where credit is due, I liked when, like, one of the soldiers, his gun starts getting pulled towards the monster and the guy actually gets lifted up off the ground. And, like, that that looked pretty good. Like, that looked pretty real. Like, I would assume some part of that was practical. Um, Whereas a lot of this movie is a CGI vortex. But then... The monster is, like, sitting there in the cockpit of his almost-finished ship, but he needs one last piece before it's done and he can leave. And the magnet storm grabs the little locket that Joe has been carrying around that has a picture of his mom. And, you know, he's been clinging to this thing. But now 
he's had this this journey this this arc and he's finally ready to let go and he lets go of the locket and it zooms up makes the last piece of the spaceship and the alien can zoom off to the stars it's a little on the nose yeah i was like saying ugh to myself because I feel like there's a lot of horror movies, especially even more so these days, where, like, the monster is a metaphor for the character's trauma. Mm-hmm. Like, can you name some examples of that? Oh, I mean, I just recently watched Hereditary, where basically the it involves demonic possession that's basically a metaphor for the grief of them losing a grandparent at the start of the film and then another loss later in the film. Yeah. Great example. Another big one that I think of is Babadook. Like the, the kid's dad dies and the mom is dealing with being a single parent. And then there is a monster. So I don't know. It's, it's firmly trod ground at this point. Um, the, the really low budget one, Skinnamarink that came out, uh, I think most people saw it this year. It's technically came out last year. It's very ambiguous, but it kind of feels like it's a metaphor for divorce is another one. But yeah, so I, I actually kind of came out a little higher on this exact moment than you. I feel like it kind of tied some of the Spielberg energy back in with this big spectacle. And yeah, I mean, it was kind of cheesy and, and on the nose, but um, I... I thought it, first of all, it was a nice image and uh, just like literally holding on to this, this physical reminder of the trouble, but it also just kind of ties in more broadly with growing up is letting go of things. And our, we as a people uh, had to kind of face down getting more complicated and dangerous and industrialized and all that. And um, I'm not sure that that fits into 1979 specifically, but it still kind of felt tied in because this was like an old beat up factory town kind of struggling to make its way into the, the uh, modern world. And that's not a main point of it, but that's kind of an undercurrent to the film. And then that kind of tied in with this boy who's growing up with this alien who needs to return to his home planet. And this also now this kid who needs to process his, his loss and move on. It, it kind of felt like to me, the somewhat of a, like a culminating moment basically. And um, you know, I'm not saying it's like uh, perfectly executed. I think you really get some whiplash in the, the tone with like the, the very JJ Abrams esque spectacle with the kind of more sentimental streak that we associate with Spielberg. But I don't know. Right. But it, it is a cohesive thread. I mean, it started the very first image of the of the film was, was the loss of the mom. So it works. And yeah, it does meld the styles of, of the two filmmakers. Another thing... I mean, we've got the the difficult relationship between the father and the son trying to understand each other, which is super Spielbergian. For sure. And then over the credits, the kids' movie plays. So we see from beginning to end this zombie film noir story in like three minutes. 
I thought you were going to be liking this, Brian. I did. I, I like this a lot. And we see like all the shots they got at the different times of, you know, we see the train is in the background and the soldiers are in the background. And then at the very end, like the the credits within the credits roll. And then Charles, the director, pops up and says, I hope you'll accept our film for your film festival. Which to me was a little bit of a, a winking Spielbergism. It kind of would almost make more sense to have that that punchline in the the Fablemans, you know. It's like this famous thing with the Beatles on their rooftop concert. Like, I hope we pass the audition when the band was about to break up, which was later spoofed in The Simpsons, where Barney says, ha, 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 I don't get it. <laughs> I think it's Barney who does that. Yep. The B sharps. Which one of many things on The Simpsons that I didn't understand at all when I first saw it. Still appreciated some of the jokes, but like didn't know that it was all, it all built on what had come before. Yeah, it was all Beatles, yeah. <laughs> they put the baby on board sign on their car. Now people will stop intentionally ramming our car. <laughs> of course, now anytime I see somebody who's got that sign, that's always what I think. I've had multiple people bring up to me, I'm like, what's the point with the baby on board sign? Why do people put that on the car? And to me, it's like, okay, it just means stay away because you're now driving near a sleep deprived person who is also has a cranky kid behind them and is going to be like reaching back to give them a pacifier or a granola bar or something like this is for your safety more as much as their safety. Like this is a dangerous driver right now. <laughs> yeah. I, I think there's something to that. So that is Super 8 from 2011. For me, it was like more of a moment in time. But let's let's talk about it as its own merit. So what are some of your thoughts, Dan, that we haven't said yet? Um, so I think I spent a lot of this episode so far like picking nits with the s- storytelling. And I do think that that's kind of where this movie falls apart. And I think I would guess it's like kind of confused vision of what to do with its story is maybe part of the reason that I feel like this one just hasn't endured. Like, I, I don't feel like this comes up as, as a, a, something that has a legacy very much. Yeah. What's the joke about Avatar that you've said? Oh, yeah. No cultural impact or something. No cultural footprint. Right. But yeah, here in my notes, I've got, does this movie have a legacy? And that's really interesting because I think you're right. I think it is a a moment in time. And I wish I had thought a little bit more about like, did this kind of predict anything about movies? I will say the color grading felt very late 2000s, early 2010s. It's got like the heavy blue, uh, steely blue, action movie look that I kind of associate with, uh, I don't know, like the first Transformers and, and just movies of this, this action movies of this era. Totally. I don't know. Do you think it has a legacy, Brian? I feel like you feel, I think it doesn't come up in discussion very often. I feel like if I hadn't gone to see it, I would not have thought to track it down. But it does have a degree of personal connection to me. 
I mean, it's about the the kids making movies, and specifically that zombie scene. It's like, oh my gosh! So I'm never gonna forget it just because of that. But it's a it's a small ripple in a big pond. I don't know how much of a footprint it's left. Well, I think that's also part of the J.J. Abrams experiences. Like, there's something ephemeral about his films in the sense that it is about the mystique and the intrigue and getting you to go see it and be curious about it. And even to some extent, I see a little bit of this with the, the star Wars movies, like the, at least the first one, like the, one of the key things in the trailer is when Han Solo is like, it's true, all of it. And that just makes you want to be like, Oh, what is he talking about? What's going on in here? Like it's, it's it's almost like J.J. Abrams can envision a the commercial that's going to be made or like the ad campaign more so than he can envision the, the film itself, you know. But that said, I don't know, I, I had good vibes the whole time. Like I like I said, I spent a lot of time here nitpicking, but I was kind of along for the ride when I was watching it. And even when it was doing the monster stuff, I was not bored because I kind of had bought in on the characters and I wanted them to spend more time together. Like the chemistry between the kids is good. And particularly Elle Fanning and then the lead guy, I was like, Oh, this is like, I actually am rooting for them. Like I actually care about whether they, they both survive and and, and get to make zombie movies together now. And yeah, I don't know. I agree. I think the strongest element is this kid cast the the circle the the filmmaking crew as a whole has a great dynamic but yeah especially the the two leads between i think his name is joel courtney i don't know that he went on to anything else but uh, then with l fanning for sure but i like i even like the dad i think he he does okay i care less about alice's dad who gets gets a good bit of screen time i wasn't ever really sure how to feel about him like he's kind of intentionally made off-putting at the start and then they redeem him a little bit yeah i thought that uh he was kind of shallow as a character and and this is to me you know we've been talking this whole time about what feels more abrams-esque and what feels more spielberg-esque and i think that's probably overall like not a true dichotomy. I mean, if they were collaborating, probably a lot of things are a blend of them. But this to me is an example of like another thing that I think J.J. Abrams has a reputation for, which is that his films aren't always like the deepest emotionally. Um, Like the characters, they can be funny and they can leave an impression. But like when it comes time to like really the heartfelt connection, that's not his strongest point. And I felt like with that character in particular, he kind of fit a role and but didn't ever have a way to care about him so he's also i don't know how much we talked about this uh did we bring up that he's the reason that the mom died supposedly oh yeah we didn't say that because that's like a big element of their cross tracks romance is like the dads are both resentful of each other because one dad blames the other dad because he was drunk and missed his shift and that's why the mom had to go in and when she died or something like that. Right. But I mean, even, even so that's like the hand of fate. Like it's, it's not a good look to be drunk and not be able to go to work, but 
I mean, he didn't do anything that caused her to be smushed. Right, yeah. She just happened to be there in that moment, and he would have been. <laughs> so on that note, are we ready to say, is it good, Dan? <laughs> what was the thing that Ben said? Who, Who is he in him in this? <laughs> Who's him in this? <laughs> well said, Ben. <laughs> um, so I, I'll bring, I'll, I'll talk us in here. So is it good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, a one out of eight to our masterpiece rating toward a good, which is an eight out of eight. So I will answer first is super eight good. So throughout when I was watching, I was always vibing with it and always had a positive impression and I actually was feeling good at the ending of it. I was like, I think that was a very good movie. Um, so like right as the movie ended, if you had asked me, I would have said it's a low six, like barely on the other side of the six. And then as I kind of sat on it and I thought a little bit more about it and some of the jankier pieces of it just kind of stuck out for me. Um, it's a movie that like kind of rides on, on vibes and depending on how much you cling to those vibes and are willing to dismiss the the more rickety pieces of it will kind of define how much you enjoy it. Um, I'm going to give it a good. I'm going to give it a higher end good uh, for Super 8. I think it's I think it's really entertaining. And even when stuff kind of shifts in and out of focus in terms of like how well thought out it is. It's always exciting. And even like the monster stuff, which I think we've said doesn't work quite as well as like the interpersonal stuff with the kids and, and their their whole chemistry and everything. Um, it's still exciting and well-crafted. I mean, uh, both Spielberg and Abrams do spectacle well. And I thought the train crash was like something else. I almost feel like you said that it felt like a totally new movie, but I actually feel like you could tell a version of this movie where the, the train crash is the inciting incident that like the kids are struggling to work through for the rest of the movie, no alien involved. You could just have this plane crash, not plane crash, you could just have this train crash and still have that kind of fit into the rest of the movie. And so I didn't really necessarily feel that that was like mutually exclusive genre wise to like the kids just being kids in an American podunk town. Like, isn't that sort of what stand, I haven't seen stand by me, but isn't that sort of what stand by me is? Yeah. Actually, I'm glad that you brought stand by me into the conversation because there's a lot of that here too. And to me, I mean, kind of like what you're saying that the story could work without a monster stand by me. And it are like the same story, but one's got a monster. Interesting. Okay. And yeah, both by Stephen King, of course. Um, but it's like a flashback to the fifties, a, a story about a, a coming of age among a group of friends. Gotcha. So, yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's a good movie. It's, it's well-made and it's, it's not necessarily one that'll leave a, a long lasting impression, but it's, it's got some craftsmanship and fun in it. So I'm going to say it's a good, a five out of eight. What about you, Brian? Is super eight good? So I thought we might end up a point or two apart, but I am actually right there with you, Dan. Although it was kind of a roller coaster ride getting there, because to me, this movie has some high highs and some some lower lows. But I really like the story of the kids making the movie. 
I guess why the train crash throws me so much is largely because of all the CGI. Like, it just really pulls me out. And then the alien is kind of like a symptom of that. It, it just, it really feels like it's invaded this pre-existing thing to me. And that sets it back some. But, I mean, on the whole, the balance works. I understand that it's a hybrid project and is kind of like a fun team-up. A little bit in the way that From Dust Till Dawn is. Where, you know, each filmmaker is bringing their flavor to it. And more so in this case, like melding, melding their elements together. It's not an A half and a B half. There's both voices present throughout. And it works. What I will say is that the train crash, when I saw the scene from Greatest Show on Earth in Fablemans, I was like, oh my god, that's the Super 8 crash. That's funny. So I knew, it's like, <laughs> wow, this clearly has left an impact on, on Spielberg. And so yeah, I, I landed a 5 if I didn't say. 5 out of 8. I think it is a good movie. It's I'm not going to shake you down and run you out into the street and say, you need to watch Super 8. But if you do watch it, you might like it. I think it's very much a movie about making movies. Which was like my, my key factor back in, say, Train Month, for instance, is like, is this a trainy movie? Doesn't matter if it's good. Thomas and the Magic Railroad is absolutely saturated with traininess. Yeah. And it's uh, like, is it train instead of is it good? <laughs> exactly. Do they make a movie? And yes, in fact, they do. So, Brian, now I'm just imagining, like, I, I'm just like maybe a, a mom or a dad taking their their dog out for a walk. And then there's someone who's like round in the corner. And it's it's this guy. It's, it, he's just like he's almost foaming at the mouth. He's running down the street and he runs up to him and says, you gotta watch Super 8. You gotta. And then just keeps running down the street after that. <laughs> to the next person. Gotta tell the next person. It, what do they say on The Simpsons? You sit here, Ralphie, while I go talk to the raving derelict. <laughs> what the hell is... Yeah. <laughs> and thank you for letting me rave, listeners. <laughs> here in our first installment of the theme month, Dan, what is next? I think I mentioned earlier in the podcast episode that I just have like a massive list of movies that I want to see, some of which I've seen and want to talk about, some of which I just want to see for the first time. I think I'm going to end up picking... Uh, so there's kind of a couple of categories, and I decided that I'm going to, since usually for theme months, the person who kicks it off ends up picking three movies or three weeks worth of movies, let's say. And uh, the, the other person ends up with two selections. So that means I'm just going to get two selections in this case, although I did kind of lead us in with the Babylon singing in the rain. So uh, we'll count it. But what, what I'm going to do with my two selections is one of them, I'm going to do kind of a, a movie that's, at least to my knowledge, the movie making itself is like just the, the framework on which the, the movie rests. It's not necessarily like formally the reason that this movie was made. 
Um, and then the second one, I'm going to definitely choose something weirder and more meta, uh, maybe something avant-garde. I haven't decided what that one's going to be yet. But for this week, I'm going to choose the classic comedy Sullivan's Travels, which I've never seen. I think it's typically cited as a screwball comedy. Have you seen this one, Brian? I actually have seen Sullivan's Travels. That was one we watched in film class in undergrad. So it's been a long time. This wasn't one of the ones you're going to pick, was it? Nope. Okay, good. So we'll watch Sullivan's Travels, 1941, directed by Preston Sturges. I don't think I've seen a Sturges film, so this will be a first for me. And then uh, another thing, Brian, uh, like I said, this one's uh, kind of the comedy angle, also the angle where the movie making is, or the being about movies is almost coincidental to the thing itself. I don't know if that's actually true in Sullivan's Travels. We'll see. But um, I also want to talk about another comedy that I really like, and that is uh, Party Down. I think we've talked about it before, but I want to talk about the episode where they go to Steve Gutenberg's house. So I'm going to ask you to watch that episode again, or at least the scene where they two times reenact a script that one of the characters has written. Okay. And it's it's uh, one of my favorite episodes, and then those are a couple of my favorite scenes in the movie. Um, and I'll, I'll opine on Party Down a little bit as well, which I don't know if I've done on the pod before, but I'm always happy to do even if I have done it before. Yeah, yeah, I think at most we've just danced around a little bit. So I'm looking forward to it. Do you know the title of the movie that they're making in Sullivan's Travels? So I think I do. I think I saw this spoiled for me somewhere when I was uh, uh, looking it up just to get some basic info on it. But is it Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? It's Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And then the Coen brothers, of course, use that as a title for their movie about the Great Depression. So, yeah, when I heard that, it like blew my mind. It's like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> gotcha. But cool. So, Brian, thank you for kicking off MAMM, M-A-M-M-M. -M -M, Glad to do it. Thanks for sharing the journey. I look forward to the next one. And listeners, join us again here on The Goods. Mm -hmm.